Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, I invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 3. We have been preaching through the New Testament letter of Colossians, and we are uh, midway through chapter 3, but we're going to hit the pause button on our Colossians series, and today I'm going to preach a standalone message, which is unlike most of our preaching here, one of our values and one of the things that we uh, find very important here at Crosspoint is that we preach through the scriptures. This type of preaching is called expositional preaching or exegetical preaching. Those are two words that mean similar things. It means that you take a text or a book, more preferably, of scriptures and you preach through it line by line. That's what we do a vast majority of the time, and there's reasons why we do that. It's because we believe that the Bible is authoritative, it's completely true, we believe it's inspired by God, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is much wiser than we are, especially a young, immature pastor like me. And so we preach through the scriptures, that's what we do. But every now and again, um, we do what we call topical messages, And today I'm going to do a little bit of that, and I'm going to preach to you about what the church is. And I'm going to really let the Bible hopefully explain most of that. Here's my goal today. I'm going to read a short short passage out of Ephesians 3, and we're going to use that as a springboard to really the whole scriptures. I'm going to start in Genesis and go through Revelation, and quickly, don't worry. And uh, I am going to, hopefully today, I have one goal. This one goal is to cause, through the reading of these scriptures, and my comments on them, for us to see the church and what the purpose of the church is. Here is the message of the Bible. The message of the scriptures is that God is reconciling a lost creation and world to himself through Jesus' work on the cross alone and is calling all men everywhere to repent and believe in what Jesus did on the cross. And through His Word, just as He made the world in Genesis 1, through His Word, He is creating a people for Himself so that through those people, they would be a display of His greatness to the universe and that He would restore all things to Himself. That's the message of the scriptures. Everything fits together as a beautiful mosaic, preaching that same message. And today, I am going to jump all over the scriptures and hopefully cause us to see and exalt and and rejoice and have our affections stirred for this beautiful thing called the local church. We live in the land of of assumed Christianity where everybody thinks they know what they're talking about because they're getting a bulletin from some church that their grandma grew up in. We live in a religious but mostly lost city where commitment is low, where religion is on our lips, but Jesus is far from our hearts. And so today I want to do nothing else other than to stir our affections for the thing that Jesus died for. So that together we would, as we do life together here in this city, in this area, and as a church, that we would give our whole hearts to the body of Christ. 
to the people in this room and to the spreading of Jesus' fame through our life together. Jesus' plan for the evangelization of the nations is the local church. Saint Antoine, or Antoine Saint de Exupéry, who was a French pilot in World War II, I don't know anything about him other than the fact that he was a writer and a pilot. I have no idea where he stood with Jesus. He was French. I have no idea what his life was all about, but he did offer one quote, not a Christian quote, but I think it encapsulates what we're wanting to do today. This is what Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I just love saying it. He said that if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather the wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And today I want my feeble words and the powerful word of God to cause us to yearn for the body of Christ so that together we would be a display of the gospel. Well, let me read from Ephesians chapter 3, and then I will pray. Ephesians chapter 3, and then I'll pray, and we'll be all over the place. I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. Um, I usually say when I read a lot of scripture that if you want to just hunker down, we'll have all these notes on the internet, which we will by tomorrow afternoon, hopefully sometime. But um, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, this is a good way for you to become familiar with the Bible through flipping through the scriptures. And if there's kind of a religious little snobby person next to you that acts like they know where everything is in the Bible, just elbow them right in the face. And then, <laughs> what's wrong with me today? I'm, all right. Don't be a snob, all right? I mean, just, that's what I'm saying. If, if you, know, you know, like, I know where it is, you know, like, you know the person... You know, like they get there first and they're just like wanting to show everybody, you know, don't be that guy. All right, Ephesians 3, verse 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of people just like us. I realize we're parachuting down in the middle of a book, which is dangerous. That's why topical preaching is often dangerous, because you're extracting one little truth out of a thing that's in the context. But it's okay to do occasionally if you stay in context, which I hope I'll do today. Ephesians 3, verse 7, Paul writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, listen to verse 10. So that through the church... Little dusty places like Crosspoint. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Well, let me pray and then let's launch. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Lord, I know I'm addressing very likely three groups of people, those that are your children, people that have responded to the gospel and repentance and faith, that have been born again, that know you as their Savior, that are struggling like I am to live for you, that are still struggling with sin, but are here to listen to your word and to be renewed and encouraged and formed through your spirit and your word. God, would you encourage those people today? Would you you knit us closer together? 
Lord, I realize that there very likely may be. In fact, I hope there are unbelievers in this room, people that are honest with their spiritual uh, place in life. They uh, are interested maybe in Christianity. They're trying it out. Friend, if that is you and you're here, I want you to feel welcome. And Lord, would you cause that person to feel like this is a place where they can discover in a non-threatening way who Jesus is. But I pray for that person, Lord, that you would cause them to see and savor Jesus. I pray that you would quiet the confusing voices of a culture that exalts itself against the one true God. And that you, Lord, would speak to them by your spirit. You made them, God, and you know better than any other how to break through their unbelief. And then, God, the third group of people that is here that I am certain is there, there are people in here that assume that they know you, but they don't. Maybe they grew up in a culture where um, the Christianity was just sort of slapped on them without any fruit. I pray, God, that that person would become aware of their need for a Savior. I pray, God, that they would see and savor Jesus and that you would bring them to a place of repentance and belief and that you would cause them to be born again. And, Father, beyond those groups of people, Lord, would you come now and meet us in your word? Would you use my feeble words? God, I am a contradiction. I am a hypocrite. Lord, my life is still marked by disobedience to you and and contradiction. So, God, I repent of my sin before these people. And I pray, God, that in spite of my lack of holiness, that you would use me, this crooked stick, to draw a straight line together, even as we jump all over the scriptures. And God, through these words and through this scripture, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and would you stir our affections for Jesus? Would you stir our affections for the church? And God, would you knit our hearts together? Would you cause disinterested husbands husbands to be roused by your spirit? God, would you cause young people who have no concept of who you are and who are cluttered with information in a distracting culture, God, would you seize a hold of their hearts by the power of your word and your spirit working together? And God, would you cause them to tune in? And God, would you make people that are sleepy and distracted and disinterested, would you cause all of us to lift up our eyes and see Jesus who is our only hope. And then, God, as we come around this communion table, would you knit our hearts together in the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis. This is where it starts. I'm not going to read, but here's the storyline of the Old Testament. God, in his infinite wisdom, creates all things. God is eternally preexistent. By the way, there are some difficult things to understand in the Bible. We like to handle difficult doctrines here. And nothing is more difficult, I think, or hard to understand than the eternal preexistent nature of God. God is God. He always has been. He will never stop being God. And God, in his goodness, creates everything. But as we know, it goes badly. He, in his providence, not because it snuck up on him, but because God is gracious and providential and sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And in his wisdom, which we cannot fully explain, he creates people Adam and Eve, our first parents, and they have the capacity to turn their backs against God, and they did that. In Genesis chapter 3, everything starts to go downhill. Our sin, the sin of our first parents, which we have now followed in that line, makes things go south. And everything, by the way, people say the good old days, back when it used to be, you remember back in the 50s when, no, no, the actual storyline of humanity is, is that everything's kind of been going downhill since Genesis chapter 3. And so... Adam and Eve's rebellion brings with it consequences, which are sin and death. Now all creation, 
all humanity, every person is separated from God. We are born sinners. We're not born Christians. We are born separated. We are born running by our own will and by our nature. We are born not walking. We are born sprinting away from God. Even people that seem to be moral are ultimately at the very core glory thieves because they want to make them their own lives gods. We want to make our own religious acts gods. All of us, before God causes us to be born again, are running away from God. That's the story of humanity. That's the story of the scriptures. But because God is gracious, he taps a young guy on the shoulder named Abram, who later becomes Abraham in Genesis 12. And he begins to form his people, his church, the Old Testament church, Israel, through this man named Abraham. And he causes him to be a great nation. And the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12 and on, in fact, the rest of the Old Testament, is a story of Abraham and his line, his sons, and their nation that comes out of them, Israel. It's a sign of God forming his people through, through Abraham's line. This becomes the nation of Israel, and they do all sorts of crazy and wicked things. The rest of Genesis reads like a Jerry Springer episode. It's bad. People are doing whack stuff, but God is gracious, and God raises up temporary leaders who come to rescue his people from their rebellion. At the end of Genesis, we find God's people in such rebellion that they have found themselves captives in a foreign land. They are Egyptian slaves, but God in his graciousness raises up a leader named Moses. And Moses leads his people from captivity across the Red Sea and leads them into a wilderness, a, 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 a wilderness for 40 years. And they wander around. God leads them out of that. But still, they're messed up. They still rebel against God. They don't trust in God. Eventually, Moses dies and he raises up this other young leader, Joshua, who leads his people back into the promised land. And now the rest of the Old Testament from Exodus on is a story of how God is working in his people, Israel. He's calling this Old Testament group of people who are, who are like the church in the Old Testament. And he is forming his people so that through this people they would become a display of God's grace to all nations. So that through Israel, through the Old Testament church, God's name would be made great. And his goodness would be displayed. And all people everywhere, Israelis and Gentiles, would respond to God and worship their creator. Well, things continue to go badly. They rebel against God. They ask for a king. God gives them a king, the first king of Saul. He doesn't do so well. God replaces that first king with a second king named David. And he does much, much better. In fact, he becomes kind of the, in the Old Testament, one of the the great models of a man after God's own heart. But... Ultimately, we can't do it on our own, can we? No man is really good because even David in all his greatness falls. We know that story. He commits adultery. And then to cover up his adultery, he commits murder. God takes his throne away from him, gives it to his son, Solomon. Solomon does some pretty good things, but also fails. And then the kingdom, God's people, the church divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And there's all sorts of wickedness and debauchery. And in the middle of this, they are taken captive. The northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is taken captive by the Babylonians. And so when God, hundreds of years before, had rescued his people out of Egyptian captivity, they are now captive again to the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And that's the end of the Old Testament. And God speaks to his people 
through his prophets. And he tells them that I will rescue you. I will save you. You will be my people. And if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, I just want you to think, I want you to write down this one verse. And I want you to read this when you go home today. And I'm going to read a portion of it to you. This is God's promise in the Old Testament to his people, the nation of Israel, the church. And it's fulfilled in us today. And this is what God says in the midst of rebellion and wickedness and captivity and slavery. He says to the nation of Israel through one of his prophets, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36:22, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you, from which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the God, when through you declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I, listen to this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so the Old Testament, at the end, although Ezekiel doesn't line up in your books towards the end, Ezekiel is speaking towards the end chronological of the Old Testament. And it ends with God's great pronouncement that I will rescue you again. And then there's 400 silent years. And then, about 2,000 years ago, when the timing was just right, God sends forth His Son, Jesus. And Jesus comes. He's God in the flesh. God, fully man, fully God. And He lives among us. And He begins His ministry with these words in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus begins to preach. He begins to minister. And the Bible says in the Gospel of John that if we were to add up everything and write down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to contain the books that would contain all the great things that he did. And he proves himself to be God. He not only brings a couple people that died during his life back from the dead, he does innumerable amounts of miracles. He feeds hungry people out of one loaf of bread and a couple, couple Ritz crackers and some sardines and he makes it into this whole meal. Raises two people from the dead. All sorts of miracles. Calms the weather. And then he lays down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for human rebellion. For the rebellion that's been going on since the beginning of time and the rebellion that you and I have fully and willfully participated in. Jesus, because God is holy... Jesus lays down his life on the cross and he dies the death that you and I should have died. He takes the punishment, friends, that you and I should have received and he appeases, he satisfies the wrath and justice of a holy and righteous father. And he comes back from the grave and then he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in his name. And at that point in Acts, the beginning of Acts, which is right after the gospel, the spirit of God falls And God 
forms his New Testament church in the Gospel of Acts. A scared little follower of Jesus named Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon with all boldness because he's filled with God's power and the Holy Spirit. And he preaches to them and he says, repent and believe in Jesus. And at that moment, the church forms. And I want you to see a couple of things before we start reading a whole bunch of scriptures in the New Testament. God creates the world through his word. In Genesis chapter 1, the world falls. Then God creates his people through Abraham. He creates it. He calls Abraham. He creates his people through his word. And they fall. Then he recreates them again. He comes this time himself. David couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. But this time, literally, God comes in the flesh. The word of God becomes the, the son of God incarnate on the earth. And he represents himself. He shows. He gives a display. And he dies himself for our very sins. He punishes his son on the cross for us. And now again, through his word, he creates his people, the church. That is to be the display of God's glory on the earth. And now we are in what is called the church age. Where Jesus is coming back again. But we're in this intermediate age. Where through the church, through sleepy little, confused, mixed up people like us. God is reconciling a lost world to himself. Through the preaching of the good news of what Jesus did on the cross. So then... Church and how we do life together is of the most supreme importance because God is working through a church like Crosspoint and thousands of others to preach his good news. So let me now read some scriptures that help us, help us sink our teeth into that. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to, for the next 15, 20 minutes, read some scripture, make some short comments, and I pray that God would... Grab a hold of our hearts as I read. Ephesians 4. And I want, you to, I want you to do something as I read. As I read, and as I make a few brief comments, I want you to contrast the intensity and the passion of the language of the Scriptures with the weakness and the wimpiness and the lack of commitment of most of church culture in America. And I want us to then be stirred to live the way the Scripture calls us to live so that Jesus would be seen. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How many times do we ever say that to each other? Like we go to church with somebody and they're just being a total punk you know, out in the world. And we're like, oh, I mean, we're just going to... How, how many times do we go up to one another and say, bro, what's online here, what, what, is, what is at risk here is the name and the fame of Jesus. So I urge you, brother, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all things, over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. Every person in this room has been graced by God with a gift for the sake 
of the knitting together of the body of Christ for the display of the gospel, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skip down to verse 11. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, God gave me and other leaders as a gift to the church, not so that we would have a cute little sermon to teach us how to have a better Tuesday, but so that collectively together we would grow in grace so that the person and work of Jesus would rise up among us and that we would together become the thing that God uses for the work of the ministry. Contrast that with church in the South. Do what we want Monday through Saturday, put on our best, show up, throw a monkey at the quarter, a, a quarter at the monkey dancing on the stage, preach to me, pastor, preach. Oh, that was a good sermon. And then we go off and we do whatever. And we change churches because, you know, the pastor's not good enough or whatever. That's not the New Testament church. We together are growing in a display of Christ. Okay, I can see I have you. You're convicted already. I can tell by the nervous twitching. Go to Galatians. Go to the left. Go to the left. Ephesians, Galatians. Listen to this. The church is to be a place where people are spiritually honest. Where they can actually be real with one another. Where men can struggle with besetting sin. Where women can struggle with besetting insecurities. Where people can be vulnerable. Where you can, spiritually speaking, lay down the fig leaves so that you can actually be healed by the grace of the Trinity that flows through the body of Christ. Listen to this scripture as we read it and contrast it with the way we do life in church in America. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So what it's saying there is, hey, when you fall into sin, and by the way, you're going to fall into sin, don't just drift away. And church, don't just say, oh, what happened to Bob? I don't know what happened to Bob. I haven't seen Bob in a while. Meanwhile, Bob's getting chewed up by Satan. Because Bob wasn't in a culture where he could be honest. And by the way, if your name's Bob, I'm not talking about you. But people were honest. People weren't putting up sort of spiritual fronts because people get, people get taken out by the enemy. And they need to be restored. It says, keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6. I like this. This is good. It's not a main point I want to make, but it says one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. That means that, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, you, people that are teaching you the word, myself, Reynolds, Don, Will Hawk, I mean, you should take care of your pastors. Uh, we, should, we should not have to, uh, I don't, pastors should not be wealthy or rich, but you should also not, as the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, muzzle the ox. And so one of the ways that we do life together is that we want to be generous in our finances. And look, if you're, if you're not giving, look, we don't, we don't beat you over the head on that. But look, we can't do. I mean, if you're just a consumer, if you're just like, if you're like, if you're like a locust swarm that is coming and eating the pie, eating the meat that is Crosspoint, and you're never giving, and oh, by the way, you're probably very wealthy because most of us in this room, in comparison to the rest of culture, we're very, very wealthy people. If you're not giving, I don't know how else to say it other than shame on you. 
shame on you. We don't check. We don't, I don't know anything. But come on, we, we need to, that's part of being, I didn't even want to make that point because I don't want you saying, that pastor just wants my money. I don't want your money. We want your hearts. We want to knit together. Come on, let's, all right, scratch that, whatever. Verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 9, listen to this. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10, listen to this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why? Because God wants the church to be a little inward, inbred click that only helps each other out? No. Because the world is watching the church. And so if we're being punks to each other, who would want to join a gang of punks? If we're gossiping about each other, if we're not confessing sin to one another, if we're not reaching out and connecting with people who aren't like us, if we together are a strange little lack of display of grace, who would want to join it? And so he says, do good, especially to those who, who of the household of faith. Go to, go to Titus. Go Flip a couple of verses over. Colossians, Thessalonians, Thessalonians, first and second, first and second Timothy, Titus. We need to be a place where the generations unpack the love of Christ to one another. When we started this church, Jennifer and I were the oldest people in the church. And it was horrible. <laughs> horrible. Young people don't know anything. They know how to be cool. They can play the guitar and grow a soul patch, but they're not good at life. And I think, look, if you were an older person in here and you're intimidated by our youth, don't run off, man. We need old people. And by old, I mean anybody over the age of 35. <laughs> we live in a culture that worships youth. It's like we lust for youth. Youth is stupid. Youth is ignorant. We need people that have got some wisdom. We need people that know how to pay a mortgage and have a real job and are committed to life and have an electric bill and Show up for work and have this thing called an alarm clock. And who are on time for work. And we young people need to learn from you. And this is what Titus 2 says of that. It says, well, it doesn't say exactly those things, but I extrapolate from that. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. By the way, doctrine is not a bad word. Don't get caught up in this postmodern, pathetic version of the church where people are scared of the scriptures. All throughout the New Testament, Paul says, know your doctrine. Preach it. Preach the scriptures. We're going to talk about doctrine a lot here. We have a doctrine. We believe it. It's true. That's what faith is. Know your Bible. And if you go to a church where they preach topical stuff, run! You need a preacher who studies his Bible, who doesn't buy his sermons from other people that are national level preachers, and you need a guy who's studying the Bible, who's praying for your soul, who is teaching you the truths of the scripture, which is called doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. They're not supposed to play golf. They're not just supposed to stand off in the corner and be scared of the young men because they think the young men will neglect them. They're supposed to unpack their lives to the young men. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves, too much wine. 
too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. There are young women in this church that don't know which way is up. And they need a, a mom who's in her 50s who's raised a couple punk teenagers. She needs I'm using the word punk a lot today, but you know what I'm talking about. She needs a 50-year-old woman to not run off and do her own thing. She needs you to unpack her life, and she needs you to go to her. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, not be, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Skip down to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Why? So that we collectively become a display of God's grace in this world. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, listen to this, a people, in other words, a church, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We should encourage one another to get together. And that's what I'm doing today with zeal, encouraging you to let's do that. Let's take life this seriously and let's live generationally. If you are over the age of 40, and you are not intentionally pursuing, and, and by the way, let me back up. If you are over the age of 40, and you've been a Christian for more than six weeks, and you are not intentionally pursuing, giving your life and the wisdom that you have, even in its complicated state, look, none of us are perfect. If you are not intentionally pursuing a younger person to bless them, to mentor them, to help them, then you need to. If you are under the age of 40, and you've been a Christian for more than five weeks, and you are not intentionally looking for somebody outside of your little demographic, and you are not intentionally trying to rub shoulders with an older man or woman, you should be. It's the gospel. It's the church. It's the way the New Testament calls us to live. All right, let's go to uh, Romans chapter, to the left, Romans chapter 12. I hope these scriptures are convicting us and causing us to be exhorted and encouraged Romans chapter 12, just a couple more and then I'll be done. Romans chapter 12. To the left, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans chapter 12. Listen to this, verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, the first letter is the chapter, the second, or the first number is the chapter, the second one is the verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And let me stop here and pause and say that I think that primarily the intention of what Paul is saying here is that God gifts the local church with these gifts so that their primary service will be 
in the local church. Now, I'm not saying we don't bless people and other, other, we don't serve the body of Christ at large and that we don't, you know, reach out to other Christians or have fellowship with other Christians. But, but can, I, can I stop here for just a second and say that one of the great subtle attacks of the enemy in our culture is to minimize and undermine the ministry of a local church and one of the great ways that the enemy has worked in our culture is to cause people to have a very low view of the local church but they're christian they believe in jesus and so they float around from church to church or if they join a church they're sort of subconsciously disappointed in that church because that church doesn't do things better and so they take a majority of their gifting and they use them outside of the church and all sorts of other things which are very good things to do but what happens when that becomes kind of the pervasive way that christians live in a community it weakens the local church and it perpetuates the unbiblical cycle it perpetuates the weakness of the local church. And so you've got all these Christians who are sort of out of guilt and condemnation, sort of attaching themselves at arm's length to a local church, but all the while kind of staying over here with these friends, over here doing this, all that kind of stuff, which I'm saying do. But what I think most of the New Testament argues for, friends, is that you commit yourself to a messed up, very much in progress, weak weak representation and help it get strong because the way that the the mission the the evangelization plan of god is the local church not a bunch of christians who are kind of connected through fellowship sort of meeting together and having their fellowship but together a bunch of different type of people gathering together primarily not exclusively hear my heart on this but primarily giving their heart to the building up of this body so that it becomes a display of God's grace. And by the way, we need this to happen all over the city. I'm not just talking this, about this for Crosspoint. I pray this would happen in every Christian church in our city. That is not the cultural norm. We keep our church at arm's length. We attend occasionally, some of us. We don't want to do it. We don't want to commit. But we don't want to give up all the other little things that we're involved in in kind of the Christian community. But what happens is when a culture or a city doesn't have strong local churches, all the Christians are just kind of in all these little things and they never really make a big impact. Amen. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. So we need great churches. I plead with you, if you have a gift, would you consider using it primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for the building up of your local church, which for most of you is Crosspoint. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Just listen to the power of these words. And then contrast that with church culture in America. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We don't really have a good English word to describe what's going on in that Greek word for hospitality. It doesn't really mean just have people over to your house. You know the word xenophobic have you ever heard that word it's people that are scared of people not of their ethnicity or their culture xenophobia xenophobia you know like when somebody's scared of of uh you know somebody of a different race or a different origin you say they're xenophobic well this word hospitality is the reverse of that this word in the greek is xeno 
philo, which means that we have a love, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, that's a Greek word, the city of brotherly love. This word means that you are a lover of strangers. And so we don't, we've chalked up hospitality in, in the American church that we just kind of hang out with people and that's not that are like us. That's not a display primarily of what this scripture is calling us to. The church should be a lover of strangers, people that aren't in their social circles. And I'm not just talking about ethnicities, also that is certainly the case, but I'm talking about people that are not in our social circle. And can I stop here and I'm ending quickly so you can stop being nervous? We do some things well here at Crosspoint. This is something that we really have to work on. Sometimes we're a little too comfortable with our existing social circles. And I'm not talking, I mean, I know that nobody intentionally is, like, sees somebody that's not like them and says, oh, I'm going to not connect with that person. But we just become comfortable and there are Sunday after Sunday, I'll see somebody new that's coming in here and I'll see them sit and I'll see that kind of nervous look on their face. And I'll see a group of people that would call Crosspoint home and they're just, they kind of don't have the burden that they should have to go connect with that person, say hello to that person, get to know that person, take their name, invite them, to whatever. It's small little stuff. It's like, it's as simple as getting here a little bit early so that if Crosspoint is your home church, you are here to just be on the hospitality squad, the stranger love squad. And you're like human Velcro. And you just see people. And you see people. It is hard to walk into a church. And some, Crosspoint's a hard place to walk into. And so you walk in here and there's people that look a little nervous and they sit in the back and nobody says hello to them. That is, that is, that is terrible. And we, we are not good at that. And if you are here today and that has been your experience, I apologize to you. And if you are here today and you are part of Crosspoint, I exhort you, I exhort you to be a xenophilo, a stranger lover. Get outside of your social circle. Why? Because we want more people to Crosspoint, come to Crosspoint? Because we want a good greeting program? Because we, we want people to fill out the cards? No! Because how we love strangers becomes a display of the gospel. Do you see that? It paves the way for them to receive the good news. First Thessalonians, and I end with this one. First Thessalonians. Titus, where is Thessalonians? Timothy. Before Timothy. First Thessalonians, chapter... Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14. Now listen to this. What a beautiful picture of the church. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Admonish the idol. Idol is somebody that's sitting still. I admonish you. If you're sitting still, consider giving your life to something bigger than just hearing sermons.
I admonish you. Encourage the faint-hearted. That cannot be done simply by a couple people. There's a couple hundred people in this room. There are all sorts of different circumstances in each life where we all need encouragement. Collectively as a church, we need to know one another. We need to learn one another's names better. We need to do life together better so that we would encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Are you only attracted to people in your social circle, in your economic circle that you grew up with, that look like you? They're not the ones who primarily need your help. Yes, they need your fellowship. We all need to be connected. I'm not trying to sever those ties. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. We will sin against one another. I will fail you. Reynolds will fail you. This church will fail you. You will be disappointed in the way we do things. You will, you will sin against one another. We will let each other down. We should be patient with each other. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. And so I end with this. The church is God's plan to win the world. I want to stir our hearts for affection. I want to convict us. I want to encourage you. I want to rebuke you. I want to admonish you. And I want to plead with you to see that and savor it and give your hearts to serving it. If you are not a Christian, you become a Christian by repenting and believing in what Jesus did on the cross for you. That's the only way. Not by joining a church, but by believing in Jesus. But when you believe in Jesus, you then become part of something that is his plan for reaching the world. I'm going to give you a definition of the church, and then I'll end and we'll receive communion together. This is from a book by Mark Dever, a pastor that I respect highly. book that I read recently called, What is a Healthy Church? And he says, and we have it up on the screen, the church is a group of pardoned rebels whom God wants to use to display his glory before all creation because they tell the truth about him and look increasingly like him, holy, loving, and united. Friends, that's what we're going for here. That's why we're moving into another building. That's why we're struggling and straining to do life together so that collectively together we will become a display of God's glory to the earth. Guys, come on back. Let me pray. The Lord, as we move into communion, I pray a couple things. Number one, that you would take these words and that you would cause those of us that are already Christians to be stirred in our hearts for affection for your plan, which is the church. Lord, I love this group of people. 
But I think that you have gotten much more for us, much more than just kind of showing up and saying hello to old friends. Lord, I think that we as a church need to be broken and stirred and convicted. I think we need to repent. I think we as a church need to be uh, stirred up out of our complacency. And I think you need to press on us by your Holy Spirit. And I think that needs to happen in my life as well. So Lord, my first prayer is that you would cause these words and my, my encouragement, my weak words, to stir in us a holy conviction to be the type of church that this New Testament describes, whatever that looks like in our life. So God, would you press on us? Would you press on us? And would we repent of our complacency and our selfishness? Secondly, God, for those that are in this room that are not connected to a local church, uh, would, you, would you stir their hearts for it, God, whether it be this one or another one? Let them go to a place where the people believe in Jesus, where the leaders preach out of the Bible, and where uh, the gospel is supreme. And finally, God, if there's somebody in this room that does not know Jesus, even as we've been talking about something not primarily what Jesus did on the cross, but the result of what he did on the cross, which is the church. God, would you cause them to see and savor Jesus? And would they right now, even as I'm praying, repent and believe, which means that they would turn from self-reliance, turn from sin, turn from their self-glorifying ways, and would they believe in what Jesus did on the cross as the only hope, the only hope for eternal life? God, would you cause them to do that right now? And then God as we conclude this service by receiving communion together, would you do something more than just ritual tradition? Would you cause us to see what Jesus did, to examine our lives and to remember the cross and to unite our hearts together in faith? Lord, I pray that that would happen as we come around this table to conclude our service. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.